Is the Supreme Court finally ready to rein in partisan gerrymandering? Can social science give us a manageable standard to decide when there's too much politics in redistricting? Is the efficiency gap Justice Kennedy's holy grail? On episode 18 of the ELB podcast, we talk with Eric McGee of the Public Policy Institute of California and Nick Stephanopoulos of the University of Chicago Law School about their work on the efficiency gap and the upcoming Supreme Court case, Gil v. Whitford. So stay tuned for our next episode. Welcome to the ALB podcast. This is Rick Hassan of UC Irvine School of Law and the Election Law blog. I'm joined today by Eric McGee of the Public Policy Institute of California and Nick Stephanopoulos of the University of Chicago Law School about their work on the efficiency gap, which has played a major role in a redistricting case called Gill v. Whitford, which started out before a three-judge court in Wisconsin and has now gotten to be before the United States Supreme Court. This case looks to be the last best chance for the Supreme Court to decide to rein in partisan gerrymandering before Justice Kennedy might leave the court as soon as the end of the upcoming term. I recently spoke with Eric and Nick at the American Political Science Association annual meeting in San Francisco, and you'll hear that the audio quality is not perfect. We were in a somewhat cavernous room, but you should be able to understand the conversation, and it was a very fascinating one at that. Well, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Uh, Eric, I thought I'd start with you and ask you um, this efficiency gap that we're hearing so much about, it's getting so much attention. Where did it come from? How did it originate? And, and how did it uh, end up playing a role in this uh, litigation? Well, so uh, I was working on, a, uh, on redistricting reform issues uh, in California because California was contemplating adopting a, and ultimately did adopt an independent commission uh, reform. And so I was trying to look at what had happened with the previous plan and, and to see you know, whether, it was, um, whether it was biased or not and so forth. And so I was using the, the standard off-the-shelf metrics for these things from political science and was just getting results that I found very strange and dissatisfying. And in fact, the, the report that I incorporated them into ultimately was never published because uh, the, the results were so strange and dissatisfying that, that nobody believed them and didn't want to publish it, right? So I, uh, uh, that just sent me down a rabbit hole where I became obsessed with why it was that I was getting these strange results and, and kind of went, went uh, over this stuff for probably the better part of a year. Uh, and then came to some conclusions about the problems, which uh, have to do with using the traditional metrics in uncompetitive states. It's really not a good idea to do that. Uh, and then developed this, uh, went, went through the whole um, uh, publication process in political science and developed ultimately this alternative, um, which was not originally called the efficiency gap. It was called relative wasted votes. Uh, um, but efficiency gap is a much better name. And, and, and then uh, after it was published, um, Nick and I joined forces to, to turn it into um, a, a legal test, uh, to propose a legal test, because Nick really was the one able to seat uh, this new measure in the, the case law and really understand what would be most compelling. And so that, that piece was really um, almost entirely Nick. And um, once that came, once, once we, submit, we submitted to a variety of law reviews, and uh, um, it turned out that our 
uh, our anonymous reviewer at the University of Chicago Review was Rick Pildes at NYU, and he contacted us after the paper was accepted and said, you know what, I've been talking to these people in Wisconsin, and they, uh, they're looking for some new measure that they can use for their litigation. Uh, do you mind if I share this paper with them? And, and of course, on the efficiency gap, the, uh, Wisconsin is a tremendous outlier. So, uh, so it was attractive to them for that reason. And, uh, and so they, that's how it ended up connecting with Wisconsin. And then Nick, of course, got involved in the case himself. And um, the rest is history. So, so Nick, maybe uh, start by explaining uh, to someone who's neither a lawyer nor a political scientist, what is the efficiency mm -hmm. gap? Mm -hmm. What role is playing in litigation? And maybe to talk also a little bit about the two hats you're wearing as both a, um, uh, a scholar as well as someone who's litigating this case. Uh, sure. So uh, the first question is, what is the efficiency gap? Uh, it's a, a measure of partisan gerrymandering that tries to quantify in a single number all of the cracking and the packing decisions that are uh, made in a district plan. Uh, both cracking the opposing party's voters among a large number of districts and packing the opposing party's voters in a small number of districts uh, produce wasted votes for the opposing party's candidates. Uh, with a cracked district, all of the votes that are cast for the uh, losing candidate are wasted. In a packed district, all of the votes cast for the winning candidate above the 50% threshold that you need for victory are wasted. And the efficiency gap just totals each party's wasted votes across all of the districts in a plan, subtracts one sum from the other, and divides by the number of votes cast to make it a ratio or a percentage. And the idea is that in a single number, the efficiency gap captures uh, which party is advantaged or disadvantaged in net by all of the cracking and packing in a plan, and how large is that party's advantage or disadvantage. So it's a convenient one number summary of a plan's partisan skew. Uh, the role the efficiency gap is playing in our litigation in Whitford is that uh, it is our primary, although not our only measure, of discriminatory effect that we're using. Uh, so our proposed test in Whitford uh, has three prongs. Uh, number one, was a map enacted with discriminatory intent? So to uh, entrench a particular party in power. Uh, number two, has a map in fact exhibited a large and durable discriminatory effect. And number three, is there any legitimate justification other than the pursuit of partisan advantage for this large and durable discriminatory effect? So the efficiency gap is a measure of the magnitude of discriminatory effect, i.e. Uh, a party's advantage due to redistricting. Uh, and so the efficiency gap only comes in at that one stage of our test. You know, it's only relevant to the, the size of a party's advantage due to redistricting. Uh, and it's also not the only measure we use for that. So Eric mentioned previously uh, an earlier widely used political science measure. Uh, we also calculate that, that, that being symmetry. Yeah. Symmetry, I, I prefer to call it partisan bias to distinguish it from the broader concept of symmetry. And we consider 
at least for lit litigation purposes, the efficiency gap to be itself a measure of partisan asymmetry. Uh, and we consider partisan bias, the earlier measure, also to be uh, a particular metric that captures uh, partisan asymmetry in a different way. Uh, so that's the role of the efficiency gap. You know, it's, it's, rel it's, it's highly probative evidence that relates to one of the three prongs of the test. Uh, as for my own role in the litigation, it's been enormously fun and gratifying to be a lawyer as well. Uh, I hadn't done any lawyering since becoming an academic uh, six or seven years ago. So this is my first time uh, sort of putting my lawyer's hat back on. Uh, and I found that I really like it. You know, it's, it's fun and it's exciting to write briefs. It's uh, great to be in a dialogue uh, with a court. Um, <laughs> uh, so one of the really nice things was uh, writing arguments and briefs. The court would issue its opinion. We would try to internalize and incorporate the court's comments and respond to them in our next brief. Uh, and so that sort of dialogic uh, process with a court is something that I hadn't done before as an academic, and I found it you know, really great, and it's uh, definitely piqued my interest in doing this more down the road. So, um, Eric, one of the um, criticisms that I've heard of not just the efficiency gap, but of various measures of partisan bias is uh, that um, it doesn't take into account the fact that Democrats tend to congregate in cities. Cities. People who live in cities tend to uh, be more likely to be Democrats. People who live in rural areas tend to be uh, uh, living in either suburbs or rural areas, and that um, uh, your uh, your measure doesn't adequately take into account geography and what we might think of as natural unnatural bias towards Republicans because. Democrats are packed, to use the terminology, uh, into these self-packing by sorting themselves. So does the efficiency gap or any of the, uh, of the other uh, measures you've looked at, does it deal with this geography issue? So the efficiency gap by itself does not. Uh, and the efficiency gap is not intended to. It is, it is a measure of the, uh, the disadvantage that a party has from wasted votes wherever those wasted votes may come from. They could come from the way that a plan is drawn. They could come from, as you say, self-sorting. They could come from, uh, even from things like uh, the number of incumbents in each party or, uh, or the number, uh, theoretically, the number of um, majority minority districts or minority influence districts that are drawn in a particular state. Uh, the efficiency gap is, is a measure of a particular concrete and focused concept and it's not meant to measure everything. And so really, for the sake of this case, they are using a variety of different sort of constellation of metrics to deal with some of these issues. Um, and I would recommend doing the same if you want to understand whether, uh, whether the, the actual uh, partisan intent produced the lines that you're talking about or whether it was something else. That, that's always a good idea to try to factor in those other considerations. Uh, because the efficiency gap is meant to measure just that one thing. Um, in this, uh, there are, political science has offered a variety of ways of of getting at that political geography question and trying to address it. Uh, and they've done, I think, a really excellent job in the, in the litigation of dealing with that issue and showing that, at least in the case of Wisconsin, that is not what's going on. 
So, um, but I think it's a very, it's a very valid point. It's, uh, the efficiency gap is, is again, meant to focus on one specific thing and, and some of these other things should have their own metrics. So, Nick, just taking this to the litigation, level of litigation, so if we go back to 2004 in the Veith case, Supreme Court divides 414, four justices saying there is no manageable standard for justices, the more liberal justices, offering a variety of standards. Justice Kennedy saying, keep the door open, but all of these standards don't work. They're unmanageable for one reason or another. Um, what's changed between 2004 and now, either technologically, doctrinally? I know one thing that Justice Kennedy said was, maybe we can look to computers. Maybe we can look to history. Maybe we can look to the First Amendment. Has anything changed that might convince Justice Kennedy or any constellation of five justices on the court that now is the time to declare that there is a standard that wouldn't just be, you know, what did the judge have for breakfast? Uh, so I think a lot has changed since Vif and Lulac, and things have changed with respect to, number one, litigation strategy, uh, number two, the methods and the, the metrics that are available, uh, and number three, with respect to the actual state of the world and the, uh, the extent of partisan gerrymandering. Uh, so on the first of those points, litigation strategy, before Whitford, there simply had never been a partisan gerrymandering lawsuit based on social scientific methods and metrics. Uh, Vif was not that. You know, Vif, they proposed simple majoritarianism as their, their test of effect. Uh, LULAC was a pure intent challenge. You know, the, the theory in LULAC was that uh, partisan intent was the only motivation for the Texas congressional plan. This was the mid-decade redistricting, yeah. the Tom DeLay that, uh, if anyone remembers, it was the, the thing engineered uh, uh, really to try to gain additional advantage in Congress for Texas. Exactly. Uh, and so, you know, it, there, there was an amicus brief in LULAC that referred to some of the social scientific literature. Uh, but an amicus brief in front of the Supreme Court is a far cry from a record and uh, a discovery and expert testimony uh, over the whole course of litigation on these measures and these techniques. Uh, and so Whitford is ex very, very different from any prior partisan gerrymandering case in being self-consciously rooted in social scientific uh, techniques. Uh, the second point is that um, the, the measures that we have now are uh, improved relative to the state of the world in Vif and LULAC. The efficiency gap obviously didn't exist uh, 10 years ago. Uh, additionally, the ability to simulate large numbers of lawful alternative district maps for a jurisdiction, that's only become possible in the last five or six or seven years. Uh, so that's also a, a very powerful technique that uh, didn't exist in, in any uh, previous Supreme Court uh, litigation. Um, and then the final change is just that the, the extent and the durability of gerrymandering are worse now than they've ever been in the last half century or so. Uh, so whether you're measuring uh, plans, asymmetries using the efficiency gap or partisan bias or any other metric, uh, the numbers are simply larger, more extreme, and more persistent from year to year than in any previous decade since the 1960s at least. Uh, and so that's also different. You know, the, the threat that gerrymandering poses 
to American democracy is greater than it has been in earlier periods. Uh, so in our view, all of those are, are major new developments, and we'll, we'll see if the court is, is receptive to those points. Um, Eric, it seems to me that uh, you and Nick are fighting a, a two-front war. Uh, on the one hand, uh, you know, there are those uh, on the other side in the litigation who are saying the efficiency gap is not the standard or a standard that should be used for a variety of reasons. But then you're also getting pushback from some social scientists. And uh, I don't know how much the Supreme Court's aware of that debate, um, uh, but certainly uh, people who uh, follow the election law blog and see you know, these articles that are getting posted, everyone's got, a, got, got their own gloss on it. So I'm wondering if you could kind of give me the lay of the land as, you know, what is the, what is the social science the re reaction, what has the reaction been to the efficiency gap? And, you know, where, where are your responses to that? Uh, so <clears throat> there, there are a number of alternative metrics. I, I think the, the people who uh, argued for other approaches prior to the efficiency gap are obviously and, and understandably arguing, making the case for their own version. Uh, I think the, 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 first, the first thing to understand is that when you're dealing with a competitive uh, state um, and you're drawing a plan for such a state, uh, all of these metrics are basically going to converge on each other and tell you the same thing. So the debate is largely moot when it comes to a state like Wisconsin. Uh, and so for the sake of the court making a decision for that particular state, it's, it's not really, there's not really an issue. I mean, as for the rest, um, some of the criticisms, I think, don't take seriously enough the, um, the approach that Nick and I proposed in our original law review article, um, which involves a variety of sensitivity testing that de deals with um, really most of the issues that people bring up about the efficiency gap. And for some reason, a lot of people just sort of ignore that piece of it as though we didn't realize that there might be a need for something like that. Um, beyond that, uh, I, I, you know, I've done a, a lot of work recently uh, trying to identify what these different metrics are each capturing. I, I fully accept that, that there's more than one notion that people have in their head about partisan fairness. And that's why, to me, it's really important to, to, to not necessarily say, this is the measure and, and that's not but to say, this is the measure for this purpose, and if you care about this thing, this is really the measure that you should be using. If you care about this thing over here, then maybe you should use this measure instead. Um, there's a whole lot of things that you can measure about a plan, and whether you want to measure those things is largely a question of what your values are. And this is where uh, I really think there's a distinction that you have to make between a, a measure and a legal test. A measure, needs to be very narrowly focused and to be clear about what it is that it's trying to measure. Uh, and then a legal test is really about building possibly multiple measures together uh, and, and also based on your own sort of values, um, what your principles are, how you rank those principles, bringing all those together in order to sort of govern. Right? And governing is, is a much more um, sort of value-laden and, and in many ways complex um, process compared to just measuring something. And so I, I think, I, so I, I don't want to get too much, I don't want to get into all the details about how mine differs from theirs, except to say that I think that if you know what it is that you're measuring, they, they all have some validity. Can I just add also like two short comments to that? 
One is that I think the, the debate in the social science literature needs to move on beyond what the right metric is. You know, there, there are so many interesting questions uh, beyond just the, the validity or lack of validity of different measures. Uh, we really want to know um, what causes uh, large efficiency gaps or partisan biases or mean median differences. Uh, what is the relative role of political geography, uh, compliance with the Voting Rights Act, party control of the redistricting process, et cetera. Uh, what are the consequences of large efficiency gaps or partisan biases or what have you? you know, how do they affect uh, legislative representation? How do they affect policy outcomes? How do they affect other things that we care about in the world? Uh, I think the, you know, the, the measurement debate is an important one to have. But you know, it should not and cannot ex exhaust the entire debate in the social science world. Uh, so I think it's really important to move on to causes and consequences of these metrics rather than just the metrics themselves. Uh, the other point, which is related to what Eric was saying before, is that given the convergence of these metrics in the competitive jurisdictions that are the, the subject of a lot of the litigation here, uh, this really is a tempest in a teapot, you know, given that you're going to get exactly the same answer for Wisconsin or North Carolina or Ohio or Florida, uh, whether you use uh, the efficiency gap or partisan bias or the mean median difference, uh, we really don't need to be agonizing over these uh, relatively minor distinctions. Uh, this is Eric. One, one other uh, point that uh, I wanted to make following on from Nick is that we are, we are here recording at the American Political Science Association meeting and, and we have presented a paper that does some of what Nick is talking about to sort of analyzing causes uh, and Nick has also done a law review piece that does some of the same thing so we are uh, sort of um, putting our money where our mouth is and, and sort of moving on and trying to, to understand some of the, some of the down the road um, implications. Uh, last question uh, for Nick. Uh, seems like there's a lot more Republican gerrymandering than Democratic gerrymandering these days, simply because I would say Republicans control more uh, state houses, state, state, state governments generally. Um, but there's an interesting case out of Maryland uh, involving a Democratic gerrymander. I was wondering if you could address that and the efficiency gap there, if you've looked at that, mm -hmm. and also speak a little bit to uh, the dissent that Judge uh, Niemeyer recently wrote, Judge Niemeyer, just to situate this, uh, is a Fourth Circuit judge who was sitting on a three-judge district court panel. One of the mo most conservative judges um, wrote a very interesting dissent uh, at, at an interim stage in this case, which basically says um, partisan gerrymandering needs to be reined in by the courts. Mm -hmm. and, uh, somewhat of a surprise. Um, uh, but so I'm wondering if you could speak to, to the Maryland situation and that, that case is uh, now basically waiting in the wings as is a case from North Carolina as are other cases uh, as these uh, uh, as the uh, Whitford case gets litigated. Uh, so the Maryland case is interesting legally to me because uh, it's a single district challenge. You know the, the plaintiffs in Maryland are not challenging the entire district plan. Uh, they're attacking the, the deliberate flipping of a single congressional district from Republicans to Democrats. Uh, and in my mind, that's the real problem with that theory. Uh, no one approaches partisan gerrymandering from a district-specific perspective. You know, map makers uh, 
think about the practice as a statewide practice. Uh, so I think focusing on a particular district is just uh, conceptually the wrong way to tackle the problem of partisan gerrymandering. Uh, in Maryland, for example, uh, it's incredibly probative information that by flipping that one district, the overall congressional delegation in Maryland went from 6-2 Democratic to Republican to 7-1 Democrat Republican. Uh, what if Maryland's plan had been three Democrat, five Republican before, and by flipping this district, it went to 4-4? Four, four. Uh, on the plaintiff's theory, that would make no difference. There was still the deliberate flipping of this one district. But it obviously makes all the difference in the world whether uh, the entire delegation is evenly split down the middle or whether it's uh, vastly tilted in a democratic direction. So I think that you, know, you, you simply can't ignore the statewide vote and seat information when you're thinking about partisan gerrymandering. Uh, that being said, I think one could uh, reach just about the same conclusion in Maryland using the same theory as in Whitford. So uh, you clearly had discriminatory intent in Maryland to benefit the Democrats. Uh, you've clearly achieved a large and durable pro-democratic efficiency gap in Maryland. Uh, you know, Maryland has had a uh, either double-digit or close to double-digit pro-democratic efficiency gap in three consecutive elections. So that's you know pretty. It's not quite as bad as uh, some of the other states where litigation has been considered, but it's bad and it's persistent. Uh, and there's no plausible argument that Maryland's geography uh, requires or necessitates or justifies uh, a 7-1 uh, highly pro-democratic uh, map in the state. Um, so I don't see any reason why one couldn't file a, uh, a plausible statewide challenge in Maryland. Um, Judge Niemeyer's dissent, I think, has a lot of language that I completely agree with about the uh, cancerous nature of gerrymandering, about the uh, inconsistency of gerrymandering with basic democratic norms. Uh, I'm also uh, quite favorably disposed uh, toward the First Amendment theory that, just, that the Judge Niemeyer uh, employs in the case. Uh, I think that the, the Whitford three-part test is perfectly cognizable under both equal protection doctrine and First Amendment doctrine. Uh, so I would say that I'm very sympathetic to Judge Niemeyer's dissent, uh, and I just wish that he had been presented with a uh, statewide claim that I think would be more conceptually coherent than the district-specific claim that's actually been brought in Maryland. Well, it's been a great discussion. I appreciate you both taking time out from your busy APSA schedules. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we'll be watching uh, oral argument, uh, or I guess we won't be watching, you'll be watching oral argument. <laughs> we'll be uh, reading a transcript and then listening to oral argument, which is uh, on October 3rd. Uh, so uh, transcript release later that day and the audio release at the end of that week. And um, uh, we'll see what happens. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. The ELB podcast is supported by the University of California at Irvine School of Law, but I am solely responsible for its content. The technical producer of the ELB podcast is Jared Hassenklein. The theme music is the composition Jazz by the band Beat FN, used under Creative Commons license. Join us next time for the ELB podcast. I'm Rick Hassen. Goodbye. <laughs>